Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How lovely to see so many of you here. And of course, how delightful to have Sir Alan Aitbourne with us this evening. Um, we, we sadly missed the platform when Seasons Greetings was on. We couldn't make a date. So we're sort of catching up for lost time. And also, we're here, obviously, to uh, mark the return of a small family business. We're in the house right now uh, to the Olivier Theatre, where it was first seen some some 27 years ago. So very, was it good to see it back in its old surroundings? Extraordinary. <laughs> uh, I was very young when we first did it. Uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was part of the season that the great Peter Hall asked me to do. Um, he, gave me, he, he was trying to lure me away from Scarborough, uh, which of, as some of you know, probably it's the theater I ran for. 40 years or something, um, and uh, he thought of a really good carrot, which was to ask me to form my own company to tackle three plays, one in this theatre, the Olivier, one in the Littleton, and one, I think, in the late Cottesloe. Um, um, and uh, I could choose which ones, um, but there was a big but, because Peter's a superb diplomat. <laughs> the one condition he had was that the play for the Olivier should be my new one. Uh, a, that it had a bigger take, so the chances are if I cocked up the other two, there was a chance of at least breaking even. Um, <laughs> and um, it was the first time for decades I'd ever written a play other than uh, for myself. Um, I ran the theatre, so I was a the artistic director with whom the buck stopped. And every year I'd ask myself to write me a play. And, <laughs> and every year, having delivered it, I accepted it. Uh, <laughs> this, this time, I had to send it to Peter. Uh, and I was absolutely petrified. And Peter, being Peter, was somewhere like he was not in the National, he was somewhere else. He was in L.A., I think. Um, <laughs> so I had to wait two days, bless him, uh, well, that's just for the time difference. And then he rang me and he said, yes, lovely, thank you so much. Uh, and he accepted it. And uh, then I had to wait for a, virtually a, over a year while we did the other two shows. We did tons of money in the Littleton. And then um, a production of... Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge um, in the Cottesloe. Um, and then we came to this one. And by then, the company had gelled. They were all in the same place, or most of them had been playing together for the preceding year. So it was quite exciting. Um, and, um, but I'd forgotten anything. I read it, read it once before the read-through. Um, and we all sat around the table, and we read it, and I was thinking, yeah, this reads okay, but how does it go on stage? And the National are very good at providing you with mock-ups in rehearsal rooms, so I had a scaffold mock-up, very much as they had this time. Uh, for, otherwise, if you, a play set on two levels is, is really incredibly difficult. Um, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to visualize it just sitting watching a flat space. So we had the thing, and I started blocking it, that's it. Is it moving it on its feet by a second day? And I really wanted to get through it. So in two days, we got right through it. And thank God, all the moves worked. And I, I was the most relieved person in the room. And I said, thank you. The guy knows what he's doing. Um, and um, so we, we carried on from there. And 
Now that, and you wrote it in advance. At that point, you had a reputation for delivering perhaps the night before you started rehearsal, mm. so actors never actually knew what they were playing. That, you wrote a year, that, that was the first time you'd done that, is that right? Yeah, it's the first time. And, and therefore, my nerve had broken, because you know, the reason I wrote was that at least if we were into rehearsal, I couldn't lose faith in the play. Um, but of course, uh, there are stories of actors literally having not read it because they've slept or something. Uh, and when we got into the read-through, I could see them surreptitiously feeling through the pages to see if their character died at the end of the... <laughs> <laughs> or whether he made it to the last curtain. Because um, we used to just cast anyone from scratch in the company. We, we, we had about six or eight people and in the early days. Um, uh, and this was... Uh, the chance to play with really big toys, um, which I was so grateful to, to Peter for having asked me to do. And writing, yes, for this size an auditorium yeah. and this size a stage, also end on, because everything you were writing was for the Stephen Joseph Theatre at that point, in the round. Yes, yes, a lot of it. Um, <clears throat> I'd written, um, uh, yes, it was the first time end on. Um, but uh, it, it's such a big and daunting space, and it's, it was even bigger in those days. I think under Trevor Nunn it got a bit shrunk. Uh, but it was a, a huge space. And if you ever see it without any scenery on, it is like a, a baseball ground, um, only, only the, um, matched by the Littleton. It looks like a, a football pitch. Um, and so um, having written once for the Littleton um, early on, uh, the first play I did here, um, which Petey also asked me to do, um, I decided, rather than trying to encompass that huge space, because uh, I wrote in such domestic areas, I divided the stage into three, three bedrooms. And then in this one, because it was <laughs> twice as big, um, I then divided it into six. Um, um, and uh, I, I worked on the, the, the principle of divide and rule. Uh. <laughs> uh, going back to that, uh, Bedroom Farce was your, was your first association with the National, yeah. obviously under Peter Hall, and he, you were co-directors of that play. How, how was that relationship? Well, I don't think he really trusted me. I was, still, <laughs> I was still directing my own plays feverishly away in Scarborough, and because it was a big grown-up theatre with serious people, um, he, he, he decided to keep an, keep an eye on me, um, which meant, meant us sitting there, and, and in the National you've got a whole load of assistants and, and assistant directors and staff directors and we both had a staff director and an assistant director and the two of us getting up and walking towards a poor little actor standing there and the six of us converging on him <laughs> <laughs> what have i done what have i done um but um fortunately um because i was rehearsing something else in scarborough i didn't turn up until the end of the i think the end of the second week we had eight weeks rehearsal was a ridiculous amount of time. That was four times more than I'd been used to. Um, and um, uh, Peter said, uh, we had a couple of days together, and then Peter said, Alan, I, I feel very confident now to leave you, um, and if you have any worries, I'll be just next door. I said, uh, what, what are you doing next door, Peter? He said, Volpone. <laughs> Uh, I said, oh, you're directing Volboni. Oh, great. He already planned to go. Um, I didn't see him again until the dress, uh, the tech rehearsal. He's got a useful man in a tech, because um, uh, it was his building. Uh, so everything got done rather quickly. But, um, uh, but I rehearsed with the actors. Um, and uh, we spent a very jolly time. But we, being a, a short sprinter, um, I ran out of things to tell them. 
by the, about week four. Uh, so we sat and we ran it a couple of times, and then we ran it a couple of times, and then we ran it a couple of times. <laughs> and then the understudy started to fall asleep. I blessed them, and so we sent them out. Uh, and then we tried to get other people in, anyone passing, just to laugh. And by the time we got to Birmingham, where we opened, uh, the cast were suicidal. <laughs> Not a laugh had they heard. All the fun and joy had gone from that first read-through. And everyone, I, I think every single one of them, including Joan Hickson, the great Joan Hickson, and Michael Kitchen, wonderful cast, they all came up to me and said, I know I wasn't the first choice, uh, <laughs> but uh, I want you to know that I'm, I'm rotten at comedy. I've never, I've never liked doing comedy, uh, and uh, I'm so sorry I'm letting down your play, and uh, I'm, I'm rubbish. <laughs> And um, I, I, found, I heard myself saying to each and every one of them, just have faith that you're great. And just, let's just wait for tonight with my first live audience in, the Birmingham's, uh, in Birmingham, um, and we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed. But I, I, you are wonderful in it. <laughs> I, I said, my voice sounded more and more hollow. As I, um, <laughs> so I didn't even know if the bloody play was any good. Um, and the first audience was like a football crowd. It went balmy. And it was just wonderful. I remember the, the, this huge Alex Birmingham. The audience was roaring and swaying. And, and the, I could see the audience. It was like the cast had had a blood transfusion. Mm. And, they were, oh. and at the end, they all came off saying, well, I knew it was going to be all right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we all got terribly drunk at that hotel. And... Uh, <laughs> Derek knew it, finished floating face downwards in the swimming pool. And thank God Stephen Moore rescued him. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, word got around that uh, the National, which at that stage was just early doors, and it was coming in for an awful lot of very hostile stick from the press. Uh, and uh, everyone was rather low in morale. Um, um, saying, why do we need this building? What a waste of money, and you know, why, why can't we do theatre in a wooden shack? Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a preposterous. And then, of course, I turn up here, and what's this man doing in here? We should be a temple of serious drama. Mm -hmm. Mr. Mr. West End giggle business is no business over here. <laughs> so, um, so, I'm so, so Peter's gallantly defending me and saying, well, I think his plays could turn out to be quite important in the future. And say, so, um, thank you, Peter. Um, so um, we, we, we did open here, and because it was such a fabulous success, um, I felt the temperature of the whole building went up again, and everyone was... It was a great moment. In the, I mean, we needed... This organisation needed a fine, fat hit really yeah. early on, and, yeah. and that, that yeah. was provided there. And yeah. uh, we were just talking about how it, it obviously... If, I hope many of you saw the NT50 gala. It was lovely to be reminded of that scene uh, that Penny Wilton and Nick Lebrevis did, which was mm. obviously from that early days. So with that fine fat hit, you were then allowed in this room uh, with sisterly feelings, is what, is what came next. Still not on my own. No, still with Peter in... Uh, no, with Christopher Morahan, Morahan. the brigadier. Yep. Yep. Um, very stern man he yep. was. Uh, Stephen Moore, I said, how's this... <laughs> he was also in it again. I said, how's, how's this co-directing and working. He said, oh, it's great. He said, uh, we, we spend the morning with you uh, when you put all the jokes in, and then in the afternoon we spend it with Chris and he takes them all out again. Uh, <laughs> so, 
So I said, okay, okay. So um, yes, we, we did that with... with, um, with and, and with some of your, your very fine acting team by that point, Gambon, Wilton, Stephen Moore, in, in, in there as part of the National Company. Anna Carteret, Anna Carteret. Um, a very young Simon Callow, who was, who was a bit wild. <laughs> insisted on wearing a ridiculous wig. I tried to persuade him against it, but he thought it was a character part. Um, uh, so, um, <laughs> it was when he played it. <laughs> it, was, it was when he played it, yes. Um, Andrew, Andrew Crookshank, who, who fell asleep all the time in my rehearsals and then woke up and made a long speech telling us how, how privileged we were to be working on this wonderful play and then falling asleep again. <laughs> it's like the dormouse coming out of a teapot and going back in. Um, Michael Bryant, of course. Michael Bryant, yes, uh, yes, the, the old stager. I once asked him how, how to play scenes on the Olivier, because I know he was more experienced at playing it. He said, well, you stand, uh, if you're playing a love scene, you stand two feet apart and shout. <laughs> if you're playing anything else, you stand 12 feet apart and scream at each other. <laughs> <laughs> And never forget, he was always in the Bryant spotlight yeah, in the middle when found he did it, that. They yeah. found the spot yeah, immediately. Wouldn't, wouldn't move yeah. from there. Um, Cicely Feelings, uh, of course, had all sorts of permutations, toying, yeah. uh, cost, tossing a coin and making choices. Uh, do we know if it's true that Gambon had a double-headed coin for the... Yeah, he used to be an engineer, Gambon. Yeah. The old rogue. And um, he sliced a perfectly good... 10p piece, I think, down the middle, and glued the two heads together. So it was, they gave it to me at the end of the run. And uh, so, so much for random theatre. So that was so he could get an easier night. Yeah, he, he, didn't he, he wanted to do the easy night. He'd give, the, he'd give Stephen Moore the coin. He'd say, can we do that? <laughs> so from there, we move back to the Littleton for uh, way upstream. That's, that's what comes next, the, yes. the water. Yes. The watershed play in so many ways. Then I was left on my own, and you, right. um, Peter said, oh, it's time for you to do one on your own. So, um, yeah, that, 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 was a, that was an ill-fated project. But you, had to, you like, like everything. You know, if you, I would say the, the good thing about the theatre is if you, you really have a copper-bottom disaster on your hands, it provides the best stories. And if you have a really successful show, you know, people never start a story well, I was in this very, very successful production. Um, <laughs> they all started, I was in this show, and it was an absolute stinker. <laughs> and Way Upstream was a stinker. I, we rehearsed it very happily in the rehearsal room on a wooden boat on wheels. And uh, it wasn't until I came into the building for the first day of the technical rehearsal to meet two London fire brigade officers coming out saying, and I remember him clearly saying, I don't think they calculated the weight of water. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> when I came in here, um, into the Littleton, I saw Roger Hulley, the production manager, sitting his head in his hands and just Armageddon. The tank, the fiberglass tank had split from end to end. And... Um, Water was pouring at, a, at a, an unstoppable rate through the Littleton stage and into what turned out to be the main switch room <laughs> of the entire building, yeah. which some enterprising stage crew had 
made a, a sort of funnel of polythene uh, and guiding the water out into the Thames. So, um, <laughs> and there was a, it was a most disastrous thing. And so we, we got it, got it right, um, or more or less. Um, and then none of the banks would move because uh, the workshops had had a, ba a backup uh, due to other productions. And then we, we had a very, f the National had a very fine metal workshop here as well as a, a, a wood workshop, a carpentry workshop. And um, because, because the banks had been designed to be built with wood uh, and uh, wood was suddenly unavailable because the carpenters were up to their eyes in work, some bright spark said, well, we can make them with metal. Uh, now, anyone knows, and I didn't do physics at school, that metal weighs a bit heavier than wood. Yeah. Uh, so the banks actually were like Sherman tanks. <laughs> and what was a simple show with ropes was suddenly desperate stage crews trying to move the damn things at all and cutting gouges in the stage as they did so. And so it just ground to a halt. So I cut the moving banks and then we got to the moving boat. Um, <laughs> had to move. And that had to move. Yeah. That had to move. And um, it, it was built for the cast. And um, then uh, uh, proprietors insisted, um, and the various crews insisted, that there were at least a couple of dressers on board and um, a couple of prop men. Uh, to hand the actors their props, although they, they were perfectly capable of picking them off a small table coming up on deck. So the boat was bursting with people, and it could hardly move. And there were two stage managers in there, cranking it, moving it as well. So there were 12, 15 people in there, built boat designed for five or six people. And um, it, it became completely un untenable. The whole production slowly disintegrated before my wary eyes. But it did get on. It and did. the content, I mean, you said Armageddon. It Literally, that play contains Armageddon Bridge is where the, the journey upstream leads, leads, leads the boat. And there's this extraordinary, it's sort of England on a boat, yeah. a class warfare seems to take place. Uh, I remember that one of, one of the critics outed one of his colleagues saying he left 20 minutes before the end and he missed the whole point of what this play was about. Because it does take an incredibly dark turn yeah. in the very latter part of the play. And it was, it was quite a surprise to us as audience then to, to, to find that in your work. I yeah, it was moving that way. I was certainly, it's a long journey from bedroom farce. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, it was, it was an, really an attempt, it was my first tentative steps, and I have to thank the National for that, about trying to say something other than domestic. Uh, um, but I still kept it domestic, mm -hmm. and yeah. there was a couple of families on a boat, really. But, um, you know, and I was quite concerned about the extremist views that were slowly being delivered. Um, and I thought the people in the middle really needed a voice, really. Um, and the whole message of the play was basically they get taken over by pirates <laughs> and there's a very left-wing pirate and a very right-wing pirate and they're both very scary pirates and they nearly kill them. Um, and um, so the, the, the little people huddle together and say, um, uh, and they escape. And then they say, we have to go back. We have to stand up and be counted. Um, and that was the 
point of the play, really. Um, and they sort of end up in a Garden of Eden, is how it's often been reported, when they, they jump naked into the river at the end of it. It's a really kind of uplifting ending in a very, very dark and nasty... Well, they get liberated, really. Yeah. I was trying, it's a bit, a bit of a corny thing taken out of context, yeah. but because um, they're both, both a very inhibited little couple, mm. one of my typical couples, but the, the guy can't really get it, get it together and the woman's very frustrated and um, eventually they, they decide one of them voices their dream um, of just swimming naked together in the river and they both take their clothes off at the end and, um, and make to jump in and um, hey, it's lovely. But, uh, well, I took it to Texas uh, <laughs> with, our, with our company in Scarborough and they flooded the stage and they did all the bits and um, they, they didn't, they'd only, I think the last play they'd seen in Texas had been How the Other Half Loves. <laughs> and then, and I did say there's a bit of nudity. Uh, I didn't tell them that there was full frontal nudity. And, uh, and I, as I got to Texas and um, to um, uh, uh, Houston, um, I suddenly sensed maybe this was going to be a bit of a shock to them. Uh, <laughs> and um, I said to the actors, be a, bit, a little bit surprised if, if, if they, they're a bit shocked by the nude scene. And uh, they both took their clothes off and they both turned frontal towards the audience. And a woman did a psycho scream. She went, <laughs> And I could see them both freeze. Um, <laughs> and uh, then there was a blackout at the end of the play. And I thought, well, what have we done? What's she seen? <laughs> what has she seen that, that nobody else has seen? Uh, um, <laughs> And then a man, a man was so angry, he ran down one of the aisles and was dancing just in front of the stage as the cast were bowing with their dressing gowns on by now and tearing up his ticket and oh. trying to throw it at them. And uh, obviously with the, with the house lights a bit blinding, with the lights a bit blinding, they, they thought he was giving them a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we were never asked back to Texas again. <laughs> but you were asked back here, and you popped back up to the Olivia. You were moving between the two. Um, to only briefly touch on Chorus of Disapproval was, was next. <gasps> David Aplouelin, one of Gambon's great performances in <laughs> yes. your work, I think, in this room. Um, an extraordinary character that, that he, uh, he inhabited in a way I, I've scarcely seen him do. It was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he, he really... Um he really gelled with that man, although his Welsh accent probably shocked a few Welshmen. Yeah. <laughs> he's an Irishman, essentially, and never change. Uh, but uh, um, no, he's wonderful. And, um, uh, but getting him alongside a, a, a wonderful actor I had brought on uh, from um, nobody. I found him in a cellar in Leeds, painting scenery. Bob Peck, um, mm -hmm. who, who turned up in, uh, to play da uh, um, Guy, uh, having just done a fantastic uh, television series, uh, Edge of Darkness, uh, which made his name. And uh, those two were mm. a wonderful cast. Imelda Staunton, um, Magic People, Gemma Craven, uh, go on and on. Um, and then it was the, the time for the company after that. So you, yeah. uh, now as a director, I, I'm right. I have to kind of own up now. Is this was when I was an usher here, and I used to be on that usher seat up there, hello, every night, <laughs> uh, watching small family business. But prior to that, I'm one of my great national theatre 
experiences was being at that first preview of A View from a Bridge, where famously we clapped and clapped until they had to come back all the way from the dressing rooms. It was one of the most extraordinary nights of theatre I'm lucky enough to have been part of. Oh, I was glad you were. And for Gambon, he suddenly took a step up in yeah. that role. Yeah. Uh, with you, with your you working, and also I, I think it was a moment of your recognition as a director. I would well, think. I had never been seen to direct anybody else's stuff, um, which is, was mine, and, and uh, I'm fairly invisible when I direct my own plays, except for people who know. Uh, but um, you know, I, but th this was a this was a play that I'd seen originally years ago, and it was one of the Miller canon that was not seemingly done very much. Um, and uh, so Mike and I decided to do it, and he, he had to play Eddie. And I remember the first day saying to him, this is such a, such a depressing play. It just tears your heart out. Let's try and get as many laughs as we can in the first <laughs> 10 minutes. And so he took me at his word, uh, took me at my word, and we got it. And of course, it's that secret of making making sure you like the family. Because when the laughter starts with that mistaken little family, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you feel for them and you love them and you laugh with them. Um, and uh, so you also cry for Eddie at the end. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was a and it was a fact, I mean, I, I always remember Liz Bell's performance oh, as yeah. the wife it was just so delicate and beautiful. And then she was up here as crude as hell playing Anita. Anita. But it was such a beautiful relationship there yeah, in, in yeah. that. Uh, then, so Small Family Business was written for Michael? Uh, I suppose it was. Um, but it was also written for the rest of the company. I, yeah. I had another actor in there who was a bit of a, a treasure, um, who'd also led the company in tons of money, the first of the three, Simon Cadell. Simon Cadell. Um, who was um, who was who was going to play Mr. Huff? Um, so I, I thought <laughs> he's he's such a he's known for his comedy. Let's give him a real nasty, mm -hmm. um, and he loved it. Um, he loved slinking around being Mr. Huff, and uh, so uh, you know there's there all sorts of people. A lot of the company were, were old Scarborough stock, mm -hmm. and um, you know it was nice to bring them onto mm -hmm. the big stage because they they'd served me well and faithfully through the years. Uh, now, when I sat there two nights ago watching it, at the interval, I, I turned straight to the person next to me and said, oh, God, I'd forgotten how horrible the 80s were. It's, <laughs> it is quite extraordinary um, how it captures that time. Certainly, I, as a young man on a not-very-well-paid job, tearing tickets here, which was great, but um, felt about the state of the nation. And it still resonates. Um, I wrote down that Mark Ravenhill called it one of the most intensely political plays of the period. Is that what you set out to do, Mr. Aikborn? No. <laughs> no, I set out to write one of my family plays. Yeah. Um, but I was concerned, uh, even then, about, um, about the slipping, the, the fact that there was no agreed moral consensus, and it seemed to be encouraged by the central government to be getting you know, everyone for themselves. And um, so uh, people were just compromising what were in my innocent little school days, because um, I am Jack McCracken, really, uh, as naive as hell. But um, uh, 
that everybody said, yeah, well, you know, big corporation, you, you can steal from that because they, they'll never miss it. Um, and uh, yeah, well, you can take that and you can do this. Um, my mum was a great example. She used to steal <laughs> masses of things. She used to work in a, 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 an office and she'd come home with pencils and reams of paper and I was waiting for the day she came home with a desk. Um, <laughs> uh, then we go to, to a hotel for a holiday and she'd be stuffing pillowcases and I'd say, Mom, what are you doing? And she'd say, no, never miss it, never miss it. I said, well, this is towels with Royal Hotel written on them. You know, and we're, we're never going to use them. Um, and everything went into suitcases. We, we used to bring extra bags. And, <laughs> Uh, and it was quite accepted moral code. And so I, I, I thought, yeah, well, okay, but if, if we finish up doing that and compromising all the time, and, and this is a chart of a man who's wonderfully, wonderfully, quaintly honest. He's a Jack McCracken who, who is forced to compromise his, his impregnable principles um, to, to, to help his teenage daughter. Um, and he finds to his horror that everyone around him has been bending the rules forever. But he's just been unable to recognize it. And then he slowly gets drawn into this web of deceit. And I won't spoil it for you, for those of you who haven't seen it. But he's then, he's then dragged down until he's, he's involved in the most horrific crimes, uh, which leave you breathless. Um, uh, at least it, it's, a, it's a sort of, or what Peter called a, a moral fable for our times, really. Uh, yeah. And I. I we haven't, I swear, updated a single word of it uh, to today, uh, and it's still relevant, and in fact, if anything, it's worse. Um, um, we've now lost faith in practically everyone, um, starting with the cultural minister. Uh, <laughs> but it starts with the paperclip. Starts with the paperclip. Which is still a watchword in my household. For any time there's anything a little bit dodgy, we all just go, Paper clips, and we stop ourselves. <laughs> it's it's a standard standard practice, thank goodness. Um, in this play, one of my favourite characters has always been Poppy. I think she's such a brilliant eight-born woman, and it yeah. sums up how you write for women. And I watched again at the weekend the opening scene of um, Table Manners, which is the duologue between the two sisters, yeah. and it's so beautifully written, and they're so funny. I remember a time when we were going to the theatre in the 70s, if you were going to see an actress friend in a play, usually she was running around in her knickers while the men made the jokes. Yeah. And that was kind of it in comedy. And yet your women are full, full characters. They have as many laughs as the men. And, and I think Poppy's a great example of that because it's only when she goes, I'm afraid when she comes on dressed as mafiosa wife at the end of the play, you just know the world has actually gone. Yeah. It, that's the end of it. She's the centre. Yeah, she's the, the heart of that. Yeah. And she, she sums up these, for me, these, these brilliantly written eight-born women. Where does that come from? I think I, think I just love a writing for women. Um, it's my natural instinct. Uh, I think it goes back to childhood when I, I, I was a single parent family. Um, for a long time, an only child. My mother was stuck with me, and she used to just take me with her mm -hmm. um, uh, whenever she went out. She was a working journalist at that point, um, and she used to go up to the women's press club, and you know, she'd dump me along, this little scraggy boy, uh, in my shorts, and I'd sit in the corner, and she'd be chattering away to her women friends. Uh, they were all women. Uh, and uh, you forget those kids of that age, they are little open recording machines. Um, and I used to look 
I look at my comic, but I was hearing every word. Um, so I just used to, so I, I learned. And I, I also learned a, from a sort of propaganda was seeped into me that, because my father had recently left us, that all men were bastards. So um, <laughs> I learned that as well. <laughs> Which is in the play. Yes, quite oh, yeah. them. yes. Uh, And also you must, I mean, actresses obviously wanted to work with you at Scarborough and, and, and when the play's transferred to London, mm. you always had high caliber actresses because the parts were there and perhaps not so many other people were doing them. I hope so, I hope so. Um, I, in fact, it was foist upon me because of my little, little company, which was 3M, 3F. So really, yeah. you had to work within that limit. Mm -hmm. And you, you couldn't write all male plays, even if you wanted to. Um, in fact, um, uh, you know, you used to divide the parts up. And because you got, you got real stick from the girls if you didn't give them enough, you, you tried to make sure they, they got their fair share. So it was just a practical thing, really. Sure. But, I mean, I, I, loved, I loved writing for, for women. Um, and when I chose... I wrote a, a very big play with a very large woman's part um, in uh, a play called Woman in Mind. And um, I originally considered whether writing it as a male role, and I, and I really couldn't get it going with that. So I, I thought, no, this is a woman. It has to be a woman. Um, trapped in a marriage she was just unhappy with, and so I, I wrote. In terms of the, the, uh, the national at that particular period as well, the, the, uh, a slight, slight diversion here is, is I've always related this production to the one that came a few years later of Inspector Calls, which also spoke very strongly about where we were as yeah. a society there. And of course, this play starts with a party that an inspector bursts in on and <laughs> turns it all upside down and ends up with them all laughing in the yeah. face of adversity. Uh, Priestley, you're quite fond of too. I, I, I love J.B. Priestley, and I, I, I was, I, when I was Oxford professor for a Cameron Macintosh professor uh, uh, in the 90s. Um, I was talking to the, one of the young go-ahead student directors and I mentioned Priestley's name and he'd never heard of him. And I thought, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have missed something. Because he is one of our great English writers. And um, uh, although some of it creaks a bit, this place like mm. Time and the Conways is just stunning. And I just love the way he, he switches the time in the middle there, which, which, which taught me how to play with time more than anyone. Um, and uh, he's written some wonderful stuff. And he writes brilliantly for women, too. And also, I th one thing I just wanted to mention about the, the device in this play of it all being one house that represents all the houses is, of course, that's why it's furniture. Because yes. they can all have the same furniture because they buy from the family firm. I've never quite worked that <laughs> yeah. one out. I think it's rather brilliant. No, I was rather pleased with that. I yeah. thought at uh, the time, yeah, yeah. We can, we, what, what, how the hell can we justify this set with, with everyone? Not everyone has the same furniture. They can't have. And then I thought, they will if they're getting it cut price from the firm, they can. You so know, they're all, because there's only a limited amount, uh, and you can use your imagination to do the rest. Uh, you can add the odd prop occasionally and take it away, but this is a, this is a standard airs and graces three-seater. There you are. Um, and so on. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Airs <laughs> <laughs> and graces furniture is, is, is something I'm going to avoid. We're saying they didn't have Ikea then, it would have been a very no, different no, story. No, no. Um, and one thing I also remember from tearing tickets was that Pop, uh, Poppy had a very distinctive dress on in the very first, in the long first scene. 
and you used to see that dress coming in on the audience that women would be wearing it, and you'd think, oh, God, <laughs> what you're about to go through in, in terms yeah, of what yeah, this yeah. is saying about it. It was a very, mm. a very yeah. uh, of, of the moment. Mm. Uh, and also a death on stage. Is that the first on-stage death? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that I haven't was... killed anybody before. No. <laughs> that was... I've killed an awful lot since. <laughs> Did it begin in a trend? Yes, yes. Well, you, once, you, once you get over the shock of, I've actually killed a character, um, you, you, get the, um, <laughs> you get the... You get the urge to taste for blood, don't you? Um, <laughs> I think that's where Shakespeare went wrong. <laughs> you always got, you've always quite, had quite a bit of technology in your plays. Um, Wildest Dreams, I remember, was the first time I'd seen a computer on stage, yes. I think, with a screensaver. I thought it was, like, amazing. Yeah. Um, that's an appalling segue into the fact that we've taken Twitter questions. Um, <laughs> that was really bad. That's why I'm not on Richard and Judy. Um, Cameron says at National Theatre, what first inspired you to start writing, Mr. Aikbourne? Uh, um, I, I don't know. I just... Um, I, uh, my mother was a writer, as I said, and uh, because I was a kid on holiday and she, I was an only... Uh, and she used to be working all through the holidays with a large typewriter on the kitchen table. She bought me a John Bull typewriter, uh, which is a baby thing about this, covered you in blue ink. And I sat underneath her table and typed my own stories. Um, and that's my... Uh, Mummy did it. I, 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 said, I said at the time, if she'd been making pastry, I'd probably been a bloody good chef. <laughs> um, Are you a good chef? No. No, okay. No. Um, oh, good type. No, lousy typist as well. I quite like this from Mike. says, where is Pendon? There is a Pendon. Yeah. It's north of Reading. And uh, I, I was talking to someone who asked me the same question. I went, oh, well, it's somewhere that... Oh, my God. There Pendon. is. This. Uh, there's a Pendon. There is a Pendon, and it means little village. There you go. Um, and I, I've... Because um, there's, a, there's a miniature... One of those wonderful English, and it, it sounds like something out of my place. They, they, there's a miniature village society there. You know, people who build tiny villages, and this is huge with railway trains running through it. And uh, you get, I, I, I join them immediately, and you get messages saying, "Good news, you know, the the glue factory is now built, uh, <laughs> and uh, they built something else." And um, and they said, somebody then wrote to the newsletter and said, I understand Pendon is being used by an author in some plays, and uh, can we stop this? <laughs> and, uh, uh, so it's, it's rather exciting. But How many plays? Uh, uh, several oh, of the plays started. Pendon keeps Pendon popping in, yeah. Pops in yeah, now and again. East Pendon Occasionals is a cricket team. Uh, Pendon Bridge, uh, no, the... Uh, uh, Pendon comes into uh, Way Upstream. They start there, don't they? Yes. The Willows Lower Pendon Bucks is where it started, in relatively speaking. Pendon um, Light Operatic Society. Palos. Palos. Pendon. Pendon oh, Amateur. Yes. Um, Mo says, how do you go about fleshing out your characters so they are believable and able to connect with the audience? Um, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> the hard ones first. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's in instinctive, really. Um, they probably, once you've got, you've got their line through the play, um, the fun bit is always writing dialogue. Um, and I always leave that till the very, very end. Uh, I have to know the character very well, and then I write them. 
and then I go through it again once, and they tell me their voice quite distinctly. They've developed it by the end of the play, the first draft. And then I'll go back and I'll just tidy it up. Because um, um, the, the people talk in different ways, as you'll appreciate. Um, some of my characters talk in short, sharp sentences, and they just don't quite know what they're going to say. Um, and others talk in very measured and leisurely sentences and are always continuing, although they're quite confident that no one's going to interrupt them. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you just find their voices. Uh, uh, and you can, you, I don't know, it's the fun thing. It, it's either there or it isn't. I don't quite know where I get it from. Anne wants to know, how did you manage to structure the three Norman Conquest plays and not lose your mind? <laughs> I wrote them. Sideways, I, I think this has been. I wrote, I wrote scene one, scene one, scene one, scene two, scene two, scene two, scene three, scene three, scene three, scene four, scene four. And I finished two of them on one night. I remember two scene fours being finished, and, and I thought, this is the last time I'm going to do this. Uh, but um, no, I just I went sideways. Uh, it's the only way to do it because you cross check what's happening in the other room. Uh, if you go downwards, um, and um, I wrote House and Garden simultaneously um, because I was also aware that if, if you, an actor up in the Olivier wasn't going to make it to the Littleton if you didn't. <laughs> um, Jane would like to know which of your characters you most identify with. Oh. Um, I don't, I think all of them, or none of them, um, all of them have a little piece of me in them. Um, but I don't write me. Uh, there are occasionally when I say to an actor, this was me when I was a kid. Um, this was, uh, I remember, the, 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 and they're not necessarily the male protagonist. Uh, there's a play of mine in a sequence called Damsels in Distress, and there's a character called Sorrel. And I said to her, she's the sort of kid who would put a turn on the tap and run it till it was scalding, and then put her hand under it, just to see how much pain she could take. Uh, and it was a sort of self-control freak. And I said, that was me when I was little. I would, I would do that occasionally. Um, and so there's little elements of you. And you go, oh God. <laughs> um, I, I can't not but mention that on, on Saturday, it's, it's your 75th birthday. And that's Thank rather you. wonderful. Um, you. You've exceeded your years in numbers of plays. What's, do we have another one on the way from you, may I ask? There is a new one written, and it's opening in Scarborough in September. Um, and it's called Roundelay. Um, and it's another of my experiments. This is five very short little bits, just very briefly. Um, 20 pages, max. Um, and it's, they're, they're like a box of chocolates. They, they share some of the same characters. Some of them are in different sequences. They don't have any set sequence. And uh, before the show, the audience are invited to select some colored balls from a bag, and they are, they're, that's the order we play them in. Oh. And somebody phones down to the green room and says, we're playing the yellow one tonight, folks, <laughs> and then the blue one, and then the black one. Uh, and um, the, the actors go, oh, bloody hell. Um, yeah. And uh, so I just want to see what that makes of an evening. And it's another attempt at liveness. You know, uh, televise that if you can. Yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs>
<laughs> That's great. Um, this is the bit I usually come on and say you've got to stop, so I'm sorry, and I've gone over, and I haven't even done any audience questions. I apologise. Um, Twitter got in the way. Uh, it's always brilliant to have your plays here, have you here. Thank you for doing the platform. It's really great. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>